Good morning um, and thank you for joining us for the final webinar uh, of the year in our built environment sector. Today we're going to be reflecting on some of the more impactful developments during the year and also look forward to how we can improve the mismatch of supply and demand. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my colleagues Anya Quigley and Jay Satin and also by Pat Farrell of Irish Institutional Property. Our first speaker will be Anya, who's a partner in our real estate team and will cover the residential zoned land tax and vacant homes tax. Following Anya, Jay, who's a senior associate in our planning and environmental team, will look at the key planning updates from the year and potential changes going into next year. And then finally, Pat will provide his views on how we get equilibrium into the market and what we need to do now to achieve that. There will be a Q&A at the end of each speaker's section. So if you've got any comments, queries uh, or questions, there's a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And please use that and we we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. As you were waiting to join, there was a poll. We'll share the results of that poll during Pat's section. We're also going to share another poll now. Please do participate in the poll. It's always interesting to get the industry's feedback to the questions posed. And we'll share the results of this poll in uh, Anya's, at the end of Anya's section. So I'll hand you over to Anya and thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. So thank you, Marcus. That was a pretty comprehensive introduction. So I'm going to just jump straight in and touch on the key things that you need to know about zoned land tax and the pieces that we expect a lot more discussion on before zoned land tax becomes payable in 2024. Zoned land tax was introduced by the Finance Act 2021 with a view to replacing the vacant site levy, and it has the same aim, so to encourage the early development of sites suitable for housing. To summarise zoned land tax in one sentence, owners or others with development rights in respect of any land zoned either for residential development or mixed use, including residential development, must either take steps to develop those lands or pay a tax at 3% of the market value of the land to leave it undeveloped. You'll probably be aware um, because of the publicity that local authorities published uh, draft maps identifying the area, the lands to be taxed or the relevant sites on the 1st of November. Tight timelines are a feature of this tax and there are a few requirements that I wanted to draw your attention specifically to. So submissions on the initial plans those that were published on the 1st of November are due by the 1st of January, and those submissions must be accompanied by an OSI map at an appropriate scale. It's worth mentioning that those submissions will be published by the local authorities on or before the 11th of January, and also that local authorities do have the right and can request that further information is provided by anyone making a submission. One point that hasn't been um, highlighted a lot is that uh, submissions can be made for inclusion of additional land on the revised plans that are due to be published by the local authorities in May. And any submissions on those revised plans are due to be made within a one month period, so before the 1st of June. Default or starting position under the Act is that all relevant sites um, are subject to zoned land tax. The Act does, however, allow for deferral of the tax in some limited circumstances. So the tax is deferred um, where there's an appeal or a judicial review pending in relation to zoned land tax, where there is a, an appeal or judicial review in relation to a grant of planning permission for the relevant land, and it's deferred where a commencement notice has been lodged and works have commenced. On works, after the commencement notice has been lodged, the tax is deferred until the date when works permanently cease, 
there's a change in ownership or the relevant planning permission expires. And if one of those three events take place before the certificate of compliance and completion is lodged with the local authority, the deferred tax will then become due or the relevant portion thereof will be payable. The qualified or limited scope of the provisions surrounding the deferrals available is problematic. I'm going to briefly mention some scenarios where a zoned land tax will be payable in circumstances that don't fully align with the stated objectives of the zoned land tax, as I mentioned, to encourage the area developed development of sites suitable for housing. So zoned land tax will be payable when an owner is waiting on a local authority or in board panola to grant planning permission. That doesn't take account of the practical reality that timelines for obtaining even a an initial grant of planning permission can be outside an owner's control or that applications can be refused or revised applications required. As I mentioned earlier, if there's a change of ownership prior to a certificate of compliance and completion issuing to a local authority, any tax deferred becomes payable. And the Act actually goes so far as to address pre-sale requirements. We're unclear as to what the rationale for this is, particularly where any concerns um, could have been addressed by imposing obligations on an incoming owner. Tax, any deferred tax could become payable where planning permission expires before the development has been entirely completed. That's um, notwithstanding that the provision under the planning legislation is that the development must be substantially complete um, prior to the expiry of the grant of planning permission. And then lastly, where an owner appeals a grant of, a grant of planning permission, for example, in, in circumstances where the local authority or on board Panala have issued uh, a grant of planning permission with conditions that are onerous or could impact the economic viability of the proposed development. And um, the tax is not deferred because appeals by owners or parties connected to owners are specifically excluded from um, the definition of a relevant appeal under the deferral provisions in the Act. Those Problematic scenarios that I've just mentioned are not exhausted, are not exhaustive. I know a lot of owners are concerned about a number of provisions in the Act. And as I mentioned earlier, we expect a lot more discussion on zoned land tax over 2023. And look, we'll be in touch with you when, when or if there are further developments. For now, before I move on to vacant homes tax, just a reminder of the submission de deadline of 1st of January. Very briefly on vacant homes tax, it was introduced in Finance Bill 2022 and is payable from January 24 onwards at a rate of three, three times the basic rate of the local property tax for the property. It applies to properties that have met the definition of residential property for the local property tax legislation and which are vacant for 12 months or more, subject to certain exceptions, vacant for the purpose of this tax means occupied for less than 30 days in a chargeable period. Exemptions are uh, available for properties that um, where the following conditions apply. Where, so firstly, where the property was sold in the chargeable period. Secondly, where the property was marketed for sale or rent in the chargeable period, um, provided that that was at, um, that it was marketed at market rates and not conditional. And thirdly, where the person who is responsible for paying the charge died within the chargeable period of the previous 12 months or where the property went underwent, underwent structural works. There's further detail on that um, exemption in the bill. 
the tax is self-assessed and returns must be submitted by November 2023 with vacant homes tax being payable in January 24. Marcus, we probably now have the, the poll results on our question on zone land tax. Thanks, Sonia. Yeah, so uh, the question posed was, in your view, will the introduction of the residential zoned land tax disincentivize hoarding uh, of residential development sites or act as a further disincentive uh, to developers uh, to commence development? Um, and it's relatively close, but on uh, fifty-six percent are, are are saying that it will act as a disincentive um, to the hoarding of residential development land. Is that consistent with what you would have expected, Anya? Thanks, Marcus. Um, so results are, I suppose, it's not unsurprising that we've uh, we've kind of a mixed result, um, that we're almost split fifty-fifty. Um, there's a, I suppose there's been a lot of discussion on this um it, recently. And look, in circumstances where developers are working with really tight margins, the viability gap is ever widening. Um, it's really clear that an additional cost for developers could be detrimental and could potentially result in an, in an increased cost to deliver houses, or worst case scenario, make it unavailable to or unviable to progress residential development. Um, I I, I know Pat is going to speak later on around what can be do, what can be done to assist in procuring um, sufficient development of housing. So I won't delve into that here, but I think that um, everyone's of the view that uh, something needs to be done, and that this is one step um, that may assist in um, encouraging development. Albeit there are a number of drawbacks and potential issues with the legislation. Gotcha. And yeah, there certainly appears to be quite a few nuances with it, as you just described. Um, just conscious of time, um, we, we, we one question. Um, you mentioned that the residential zone land tax um, relates to residential use and mixed use. Um, are there any are there any exceptions or exclusions? Yeah. Um, so in order for zoned land tax to apply to the land for it to meet the criteria in the Act, uh, land must have access to or be connected to public infrastructure and facilities such as roads, sewerage, etc. It must not be affected by anything that would physically prevent the land from being, from being used for dwellings, so like an archaeological site of interest. And none of the specific exclusions in the Act should apply, so it shouldn't currently be used for um, facilities for infrastructure, for transport. And, and it, there's an additional requirement where um, the site is zoned as mixed for mixed use. Um, that land, it must be reasonable to assume that that land um, is vacant or idle. We do expect that there will be a lot of submissions based on the lack of access to, in, on lack of access to infrastructure. And interestingly, based on the current legislation, it appears that a situation could actually arise where the land is subject to zoned land tax, because the local authority is of the view that it has access to uh, public infrastructure and facilities. But a local authority in its uh, role as a planning body could refuse to grant planning permission on the basis that infrastructure in the vicinity is not actually adequate. Very helpful. Um, and you're just conscious of time. so. Um... Uh, we'll just move on. Thank you very much for that, Anya. Um... Jay, uh, two recurring issues in residential development are JRs and viability. Um, can you maybe take us through uh, any kind of legal updates uh, or any kind of proposed policy changes to, to affecting those issues? 
Thanks. Thanks, Mark. So there have been a couple of key planning updates this year, which are likely to affect the number of judicial reviews going forward. Uh, the first is a Supreme Court um, judgment from a few weeks ago regarding uh, cost protection in environmental proceedings. So the general principle for costs is that an unsuccessful party will be liable for a proportion of the successful party's costs. However, in certain environmental proceedings, the applicant, even where they are unsuccessful, will be protected against the successful party's costs. The Court of Appeal uh, considered that cost protection applied to certain environmental grounds, such as flaws in the environmental impact assessment process or in the appropriate assessment process. And whereas the cost protection didn't apply to non-environmental grounds, such as if you didn't get landowners consent as part of the planning application. So in those circumstances, the unsuccessful applicant would still be liable for those non-environmental grounds costs. As you can imagine, this decision, along with references to the European Court of Justice on this issue, did lead to further uncertainty in, in the courts. And this resulted in expensive costs hearings as well as delays in proceedings as well, um, awaiting resolution of the issue. So the Supreme Court has now decided that it's the decisions being challenged, regardless of the grounds where cost protection applies. So this includes strategic housing um, development permissions, uh, normal planning permissions, and strategic infrastructure development permissions. So there's a much wider array of cost protection from what was considered under the Court of Appeal judgment. So on the one side, uh, it means an applicant challenging um, one of these decisions does not have to worry about paying the, the boards or the planning authorities or developers' costs, even if it loses. So as you can imagine here, the, the message might be that there will be more challenges because applicants will be able to lodge challenges, you know, with, with that reassurance. Um, on the other side, for developers and local authorities, you know, they'll now have certainty, you could argue, that they will not be able to recover legal fees, even if they are successful for, for these types of proceedings. Um, a recent statutory change is that before applying for judicial review, an applicant must have exhausted all available appeal procedures. So the circumstances where that might apply is that if a third party wants to launch a judicial review application of a planning authority's decision to grant planning permission, they would actually have to go through the appeal process rather than being able to lodge a judicial review application in respect of that decision. So just to recap there, on the one side, there may be more judicial review applications because applicants will know they're protected against costs for um, in challenging those decisions. On the other side, there may be fewer judicial reviews because um, applications will, you know, will not be lodged against um, local planning authorities' decisions. Um, however, as is, has been widely publicised, uh, there's a proposal under the government's Housing for All uh, plan to make changes to the, uh, to the planning system. So the Attorney, Attorney General is currently carrying out uh, a review. We don't have the details yet. Although uh, we do know that some of one of the objectives is that it's going to focus on substantive rather than administrative um, challenges. So there may be less, uh, fewer challenges in respect of pure kind of technical errors. Um, also, one of the objectives is to make the planning system clearer and easier to navigate, which should uh, improve the quality of decision making. And that in turn should reduce the amount of successful judicial reviews. 
uh, and a draft bill is expected to be published this month. Marcus, you were talking about uh, judicial views and viability, so I was just going to go on to viability now, and um, in that respect, the government put forward uh, a general scheme for land value sharing contribution legislation. So it's just a general scheme at the moment. We don't have the exact detail behind the legislation, but we do know that un under the general general scheme, landowners would need to share um, the benefits of their land being zoned as residential or residential mixed use. And the money um, from that increase in land value um, will be then put towards public infrastructure services in the area, um, such as recreational or community facilities. This will be achieved by imposing a levy, and in the general scheme it stated it could be up to 30% of the increase in land value, and that will be secured under a planning condition. So the process is, is that if the land becomes zoned as residential or mixed-use residential, the local authority will then uh, carry out valuation of that land immediately before it had that new zoning. Uh, then when a developer lodges a planning application um, for that, that area, uh, for that specific land, um, they'll put a submit a market report as part of that planning application, which will have the new uh, you know, increase in value in valuation uh, with the new zoning. Um, the local planning authority will carry out its own um, valuation um, under the what's the current use, and then it will um, secure, if it decides to grant planning permission, it will attach that planning condition uh, requiring the developer to contribute up to 30% of that increase in the, in the land valuation. Um, so it's not entirely clear, it does seem that where this applies, it will not be in addition to the current section um, 48 uh, developer contribution. So it'd just be, you know, just this new uh, land value sharing contribution. Um, and also it seems that the types of infrastructure that that money can go towards is, uh, will, will increase. So, I, you know, for example, I mentioned community facilities. Um, this money must be used by the local authority for uh, for public infrastructure. So just, just to conclude there in terms of viability, if this contribution is higher than the current developer's contributions, this will clearly have an impact on viability. Um, it'll also be difficult in terms of timing uh, for the application if the if value uh, of land keeps on keeps on increasing, for example. Um, Marcus, do we have the, the results? Okay, thanks, Jay. Very interesting. And so this poll question posed was, should a developer's planning contribution towards public infrastructure and facilities be set according to the uplift in land value from um, being newly zoned residential or the estimated cost of the infrastructure? It's a pretty emphatic um, choice uh, for choice number two there. Uh, Jay, I think like my own view is that, that is what would have been expected. Yours? Yeah, no, the, the same. So that's um, for the current um, Section 48 developers' contributions. Uh, the, the local authority has to um, you know, take into account the actual estimated costs for providing that infrastructure when it's setting the, the rates for uh, for those contributions. So um, yeah, that, that is what, what I was expecting. And obviously, this, this new um, the policy by the government um, in the housing plan for all. It was saying it was, you know, in terms of raising more money for community in infrastructure and raising that from the in increase in uh, land value sharing. But it does seem, you know, in terms of if you go one one or the other policies, that you know the actual estimated cost of infrastructure um, 
you know seems like a, a rational kind of uh, argument behind it so yeah that, that was what i was expecting okay very good and um, just conscious of time jay so we and uh, we have uh, a couple of questions in q a but i have one which which i'll show you through hopefully you can uh, nail it pretty straightforwardly and um, what changes do you expect to the jr system next year and so yeah so i was mentioning a couple of the key objectives but in terms of the actual details we don't really have much at the moment so you know i could kind of gather a few ideas from there was a general scheme of the housing uh, and planning and development bill in 2019. So for example, if you're launching uh, a judicial review application at the moment, there's the, the initial leave um, stage, and that's not contested unless the court directs it uh, to be contested. Um, so that might change in that the local authority and the developer might be put on notice of that original application and therefore would have a chance to contest it. And it may result in fewer uh, applications getting through that initial stage. Um, I was also mentioning, uh, you know, discussing cost protection, uh, and it may be that um, unsuccessful applicants will will if will be uh, required to pay a proportion of the successful party's costs, uh, potentially up to a cost cap, uh, and there may be need to be disclosures of their financial kind of um, background or backing as part of that to see whether they could afford those costs, because you know. Um, one of the general themes under the judicial review system is that it has to comply with EU legislation, such as uh, ensuring access to justice that's um, not prohibitively expensive. So it still has to meet that requirement. Um, and another just final change is that there might be a stronger and clearer link between national, regional and local planning policy, uh, because at the moment planning authorities are having to grapple between providing you know, weight according to each of those policies, as well as Section 28 guidelines and SPPRs, there might be more clarity um, on, on that. Uh, excellent. Thanks, Jay. Look, there, there are a couple of other questions that have come in, but um, if we have time at the end of the session, we, we, we revisit them um, and put you under the spotlight again. Then. Uh, thanks. With that, we, we, we pass you over to, to Pat Farrell. Thank you. Uh, can everybody hear me? Excellent. So thank you very much, uh, Marcus and colleagues, for giving me the opportunity to uh, share some thoughts with you on how we get to equilibrium in the housing market and uh, what we need to do now. So just quickly to think about the agenda, we move on to that. Um, maybe, uh, first of all, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about IAP and institutional investors because uh, I, I would often reflect on the fact that we are sometimes highly misunderstood and often misrepresented. So just clear up a few, few things in that score. And then um, I would say that while there's quite a lot of challenges out there, and I'm going to go through some of them in the slides, I would also want to recognize that the government has done some significantly positive things to tackle the housing challenge. Uh, I think housing for all has been a really significant development. It's the first time we've had a coherent and comprehensive strategy to address the housing challenge. Um, the fact that it's a whole of government initiative is really important. The fact that the government is committed to multi-annual budgeting is also critically important. But that said, I, I will, as I go through the slides, explain why I think we really need to step up the pace and tackle some really important issues, which are, in turn, um, you know, first of all, we need to decide how many houses we actually need to build to get to equilibrium. Uh, then in, ensure we have the mechanism in place to fund it because the, the scale of the funding required is significant. And then, of course, we really need to focus on the whole viability, affordability 
challenge, which has become even more acute uh, since we've in entered into a, an inflationary, a highly inflationary phase in construction costs. And then lastly, the one that Jay's just been talking about, fixing the planning system. So if you're all right, I think, uh, the, look, I would also say before I move on to the next slide, everyone will have their list of what the top issues are. These are just mine, uh, but but for me, I think these are, are among the most important issues to be tackled if we're going to get real scale delivery of housing in this country and start to decisively tackle the, 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 the challenge or the crisis, whatever you want to call it, that we have currently. So just moving on to the next slide, a little bit about IIP. We have 19 members. Uh, we are significantly committed to the Irish real estate market. The members that are there before you, uh, we would have the likes of the scale house builders in the market, the top four or five scale house builders in the market. Uh, we're across all sectors, hospitality, retail, office and housing. And we have upwards of 18 billion invested across all of those asset uh, classes at the moment. And that would amount for the substantial amount of real estate investment uh, by institutional funds in Ireland uh, currently. Uh, just moving on, um, that's again, just very quickly a snapshot of some of the developments, some of them very iconic developments, such as Capital Docks there in the top right-hand corner, the, the new central bank one on the lower uh, right-hand corner, or, second, or third down there, which is shortly about to come on stream, and then obviously a lot of housing development as well. And just moving on to the next uh, slide, um, as, as I think the phrase is, not many people know that, or was it Michael Caine said it, um, we would be responsible for delivering about 40,000 new homes, both apartments and, and, and open door housing uh, over the last number of years. And currently, uh, members are responsible for close on 50% of private market output of homes, both for rent and for sale. And in fact, uh, we are net sellers of homes for sale to individual purchases in the market while many may associate the institutional investment sector mainly with um, PRS. In fact, we are uh, the major contributors of, of first sale homes in Ireland. In fact, if you take the two major house fillers who are members, they are delivering um, stock at or below the median price point. So they're very competitively priced homes uh, to the new homes market in this country, as well as our other uh, developers. And then we have within our membership as well, uh, suppliers of debt, to small, medium, and large builders who effectively depend on uh, these members who fund the equity component of these developments, um, and which again is responsible for right across the whole chain of supply for housing in, the, in this country. And then on top of that, uh, we've been significant deliveries of office space. Um, arguably, the economic recovery we experienced post the crash would not have happened without the presence of institutional funding to provide all the office space and workplace that were needed for the doubling down by the multinational sector in this country of its investments uh, already here in Ireland and some new investments. Uh, institution investment facilitated the, the real estate infrastructures required to, to facilitate that, 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 that investment by multinationals. And then with significant amount of real, retail space and indeed hospitality. So that's enough about IIP. Uh, just to move to the actual issues as I see them. Uh, the first one I would contend is that we we've, we need to, first of all, decide how many houses we need to build. And I know that Housing for All has set a target of 33,000 per annum, and that's not at the get-go. That's building to a, a, an annual output of 33,000 per year. We have been saying consistently, and we've said it since as early as July 2020, that we need to build 47,000 houses per annum. 
And in fact, if you review media and influencer and commentators in this space for the last six to 12 months now, increasingly people are beginning to converge around this number because all of the previous studies that have looked at numbers have most of them have failed to take in two important factors. One is obsolescence and the other is uh, net migration. And if you think about the National Development Plan, that had a number of 60,000 for net migration into the country over the lifetime. The figure, in fact, is closer to 130,000. So it's doubled in excess of that. So if you factor in obsolescence and you factor in those other issues, uh, it's very clear, and this is not finger in the ear stuff. This was commissioned from Ronan Lyons in July of 2020. Uh, the full report is available on our website at www.iip.ie and it goes through in very, very detailed analysis all of the various factors that contribute. And that is the figure that uh, we have come up with. And as I said, increasingly, most commentators are converging to this number. So if we want to actually materially address this issue and make a real impact, there's going to have to be a serious rethink on the targets we have there at the moment, if for no other reason, the publication of the census, which obviously shows that our population is growing at a much faster rate and the net migration has been at a much higher rate than was the case uh, and the assumption that, uh, that the national planning framework the Swiss currently was built on. And of course, the government has signaled that it's going to review that national planning framework and we will contend that we urgently need to review the, the, the housing targets as well. So just uh, moving on from that, uh, we also need to have a mechanism in place to fund the scale of delivery needed. And I mentioned earlier that Housing for All is a whole of government initiative. So that means that the Department of Finance in specific terms has been charged with understanding and uh, quantifying what is the actual scale of investment that's required to deliver the 33,000 target. Uh, so if we look at this slide, which is again uh, an analysis that was done by the department included in its quarter two or quarter one, I'm not sure, quarter one I think updated this year. It shows there the, the quantums of finances required to deliver the 33,000 houses and about 7 billion close to it is required to come from the private sources. Then you have uh, a source from the actual, uh, the, the 2 billion put that housing for all calls up. A total of 12 billion, but the really important point is that about uh, six and a half, seven billion dollars is going to have to come mainly from institutional investors because banking would supply a small component of it. But for regulatory reasons and for all the reasons to do with the global financial crash, the banking sector is strictly limited on how much exposure it can have to the uh, real estate market. So if we were to talk about the figure I mentioned earlier on, which is closer to 47, maybe 50,000 houses, the figure goes up to 18 billion, 18 billion per annum. So supposing, for example, the government was to double its current commitment to housing for all from 2 billion to 4 billion, that would still leave a deficit of about, um, if you take all other sources of finance into it, around 12 to 14 billion of private capital. And at the moment, that figure is around five, six billion. So you need another five or six billion on top of that to actually deliver that higher target of, of 50,000. So no matter what way you look at it, funding of housing in Ireland is going to be, is and continues to be highly reliant on maintaining confidence of institutional investors and focusing on everything that can aid viability, in particular for apartments, because I'm going to talk about that, that next. That's the other big issue that I think we need to address. So move on to the next slide. 
this slide may not be very clear for most people, uh, but again, you can uh, download it on our website. But the key point is, and again, this was a study done over two years ago, so obviously the inflationary surge has taken its toll since, but the relativities are still intact because obviously the cost of all housing has moved. But we got Linesight, who uh, most of you will know, I'm sure, to look at 10,000 units in planning and construction across the state at the time. So it's a huge data set. And it showed that the cost of a typical two-bedroom apartment uh, medium rise um, was 450,000 to build. That would be in the kind of Dublin edge and, and out, outer suburbs. Whereas if you went to the city centre, let's talk about the IFSC, it was costing 600 plus thousand. And for a typical two-bedroom townhouse, the equivalent cost is 306,000. So I suppose the key message here is that uh, apartments are very expensive to build. But guess what? Government has made apartment development a critical part of this compact growth strategy. If you apply for planning in our main cities, you can't achieve the densification uh, requirement without putting in a cap an application which is largely or almost 100% apartment development if you're to hit the density requirements that the planners will they will only look at your application if you hit the density requirements and it has to be apartments. But they are much more expensive for reasons that have been well rehearsed and well argued uh, many times over another fora. I'm not going to go through them today, but apartments post the global financial crash in Ireland to the standards that are required today um, and given the all the kinds of uh, um, communal costs around lifts and common space and so on and so forth, they are much more expensive. That means that apartments effectively in cities particularly, and particularly in the city core, are well beyond the reach of first-time buyers. And therefore, if we are to try and move the needle on the whole area of viability generally, but in particular for apartments, which we know are the only type of housing that can be built in our inner city cores, then government is going to have to seriously consider uh, viability, affordability. And I would contend that there are two policy levers unpulled uh, currently that the government needs to at least uh, consider uh, if we're going to crack this one. And that is on the cost side, um, where by VAT and levies and other costs that are government generated add a significant component to the cost of construction, up to 30%, in fact, or more. And this, again, has been independently validated by people like the Society of Chartered Accountants or Society of Chartered Surveyors and others. And then the other policy lever are tax incentives, although I do know that the Taoiseach is quoted today as, as, well, not quite ruling them out, tax incentives, but certainly not being warned to the idea. But certainly, if we're going to address uh, viability, affordability, which particularly impinges on what I would call the squeeze middle, the people that are in the affordable housing bracket, um, this particular issue is going to have to be tackled. Okay, um, move on maybe. And this is a particular issue and it's aligned with what Jay was just talking about. We really need to fix the planning system. And the Minister for Housing has on numerous occasions when he's talked about the uh, reform of the planning system by the legislative package that's currently been finalized by the Attorney General's office. Uh, he's used the word radical to describe the measures that will be in there. And no more than Jay, I don't have any particular visibility uh, on um, uh, what's in the package. But I do know that um, judicial reviews and the propensity for people to launch judicial reviews, and if you just opened the, paper, the newspaper this morning, 
And it's typical of any morning you open your newspaper, there's at least a couple of judicial reviews for many hundreds of units um, being reported in the paper. And this morning is no different than any other morning. But at the moment, uh, in terms of judicial reviews for a case that are overturned or pending, 36% of the units in the pipeline are being held up because of judicial review there on the uh, right-hand side. And actually, if you look at the actual uh, breakdown, because there's often a debate around, oh, well, there's an awful lot of permissions but they're not being built. The fact is that on trends over decades, for various reasons to do with viability or planning changes, traditionally only one in three permits are actually built on, and that's the historical trend. Uh, but if you look at um, the breakdown, 7% of the permissions there at the moment are only granted the past 38 weeks, and they're not commenced, but that's for reasons that you don't suddenly get permission one day and start building the next. There's lots of conditions and other issues that have to be fulfilled via the planning authority, the local authority or whatever. So that's not surprising. Then you have ones where the, the site has actually been sold on, which is around 6%, and then superseded by a new SHG application because perhaps the first one, uh, maybe they're going for higher density or whatever it might be, is 1%. And then actually uh, remaining SEHD applications not commenced are only 15%, but it said that the lion's share 36% is cases that have been overturned or are pending. So this is a huge issue, um, notwithstanding the fact we also need to address the viability issue, because if it's not addressed, some of these will fail on viability. But if we could address the viability affordability issue, uh, we have a significant choke point around judicial reviews at the moment. And this is a serious issue because if you look at the housing for all targets, which are, you know, people are saying we'll go to 27, maybe 25, 27,000 units this year, maybe we'll, we'll hit the same next year. There's a structural problem building up in the pipeline that's designed to feed delivery from now out to 2024. And it's this, 60% of that pipeline are apartments. And I've already talked about the issues around viability and cost and so on. And at the moment, uh, in the currently inflationary environment, that's getting worse rather than better. And if we don't solve that issue, then the numbers for say 2024 are going to be significant challenged. And you could see a scenario where instead of output building incrementally this year, then next year, 2024, those numbers could start to stall or go in the opposite direction. Because as I said, 60% of the output or the planned output that should feed that delivery pipeline are apartments, which as I've already said, are significantly challenged by viability. So I suppose in summary, those are the big issues, the big ones as I see them. Uh, some people may have other ones, uh, but they're mine for what it is at the moment. And I think unless we start to decisively tackle all of them together, uh, not sequentially, we're going to struggle to actually make material uh, inroads on the current housing uh, challenge. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. That was um, that was excellent and, uh, and fascinating. And um, can we share the uh, poll results from the uh, first poll? So, question posed: How many houses uh, does Ireland need to build each year to solve the housing crisis? And um, thirty-three thousand. Option A or option B, fifty thousand. Yeah, uh, overwhelming, overwhelmingly. Uh, option B, fifty thousand, has been chosen seventy-six percent. Um, and we just have a, a related question to that, Pat, which. Um, I'll just share with you um, um, in the context of com commenting on that poll result. 
Yes. Uh, with with viability concerns, planning delays, issues with labour, um, is twenty is twenty nine or thirty thousand units achievable? Let alone fifty thousand. What does the reality look like? Sorry, you repeat that one again. I had a yeah. problem with sunlight when in there. No, 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 no problem at all. So, essentially, the question was: Is twenty, is twenty nine or thirty thousand units achievable? Let alone fifty thousand. What, what is the reality? I think that I think that the thirty three thousand is achievable. Uh, we're already making you know good strides in the right direction, but unless we actually fix the viability issue, uh, we will struggle. Uh, and I would contend that. You know, the government needs to actually um, face up to the fact, um, as we have historically around other uh, kind of uh, social issues around healthcare provision of healthcare, where, you know, the state has either intervened directly or subsidised. The time has come to uh, do the same on housing, particularly for the, the squeezed, the middle, people who traditionally would have accessed the private market, but trying to access the private market to satisfy their housing needs at the moment without support Without subvention, um, I think we're going to struggle on the numbers. But if if those supports and subventions can be made, I think then we can begin to make uh, progress. Now there are a number of initiatives that the government did bring forward in housing for all, such as Project Tussie. Um, people are familiar with that, whereby they're saying that they want to engage with developers around sites that are currently not viable. See, can they be activated and and brought into production to supply uh, housing for, for social or, or maybe for affordable. Um, um, so far, that scheme hasn't um, taken off in, in any material way. Uh, and part of the reason is because I think the, 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 the terms of the scheme are not sufficiently de-risked in terms of the, the actual risk that a developer will be taking on and enter into a such, such an arrangement. And then the other initiative by government pre fund is designed to offer a subsidy for the building of apartments in particular. Um, again, I think that the terms that were initially on offer are not sufficiently de-risked to enable a developer to proceed on that basis. Uh, I know, on the other hand, the government and the agencies responsible for, for uh, these initiatives are keeping them under review and there have been some refinements, but I do think there's a way to go before as those two initiatives can actually make any material dent on, on trying to address the viability issue. Gotcha. Um, thanks, Pat. Um, it's a question in um, from uh, one of our viewers. Uh, how does land or site value impact the cost of apartments? Uh, are site values too high? Yeah, a good question. And uh, in the study that we did, which again, as I said, again, is on our site, um, the actual cost over those 10,000 units, the, the, land, the land component, represented in a range, because you know all sites are different, eight to 11%. So it is a component cost, but it's not the significant cost, and it's not to the scale that a lot of commentary out there would have you believe. Um, so if you were to say have site costs in the morning, so from 11, within the range eight to 11, you have it. That is not going to shift the needle on bringing down uh, the cost of, 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 of construction. But what would shift the needle, as I said, is the, the government-generated component, which is upwards of 30, 35%. When you factor in VAT, when you factor in levies, when you factor in uh, the planning system and the cost that it imposes and the delays that are now inherent to the current system, this is a significant component of cost. Okay, understood. So it's an issue, but not the most material issue for the signs of it, yeah. Um, 
then so we have given this next question given our um, aging population and um, the fastest rate in the eu um, are we building the right types of units yes yeah, it's a good, really good question um i mean i see on the paper today um residents in Rohini are challenging an application specifically for a development which is for over 65 and it's written implicitly into the terms of the application that the house will be reserved for over 65. Mm. The uh, the height um, of the development is no more than five stories, which to me is very modest. Mm. Uh, but again, a slew of objections before it gets off the ground. So, um, you know, try where interventions are being made. I don't know enough about the scheme to, to develop bespoke housing for people who want to trade down. Um, it seems they're subject to uh, 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 the, the whole objection uh, culture, uh, just like like all other uh, housing, but we're not. I mean, we have a lot of people living in very large properties. Um, probably, um, you know, typically I'm in a four bedroom house. My kids are are living away from home. Uh, do we need all that space? Probably not. Is there an alternative? Is there a, a good, decent range of alternative product available to us at the moment? Not really. So. I think there is an issue to be addressed there. I think there's a market there, um, but I'm not sure the economics of it are stacking up because presumably if there's an addressable market, then developers would 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 move to do that. Again, some of that can be filled by apartment development, um, but as we see, every apartment development that's lodged at the moment is pretty well, you can guarantee anytime you lodge an apartment development application, this in, in the, particularly in this city, is going to be subject to a long drawn out uh, judicial review process which isn't helpful either. Mm. Just in terms of the J judicial review process, do you think that's in part due to excessive, this culture of nimbyism, is that, is that due to excess, excessive density? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we need to be honest. Um, there's almost like a popular parlance, and I saw some academic writing about recently that said, you know, that densification is some clever developer-led plot. The fact is, it's a political plot, if you want to call it that. I mean, the government decided in Rebuilding Ireland that they wanted compact growth. They coined the phrase, it's in Rebuilding Ireland. And they then said that in order to achieve compact growth, there would have to be a certain minimum density in our, in our cities. <clears throat> and so in order to achieve those, repeating myself again, um, when somebody goes to develop a site in our city, they have to submit a development of for apartments because that's the only way they'll hit the distance. That's the only way they'll get an approval. So as a country, uh, if we if we decide we don't want these densification targets, which incidentally would fly in the face of another government mandated uh, strategy around climate change agenda, uh, then are we going to go back to own door? Are we going to back going to go back to the uh, suburban semi? I mean, there's a very interesting uh, dilemma at the heart of this. I think it was Claire McManus. She's a member of the Royal Institute of Architects Housing Committee. She wrote an opinion piece in the Irish Times about ten days ago. And she said that the problem in this country is that sustainable housing is not affordable and affordable housing is not sustainable. And I think what she meant was that, well, affordable housing is probably your standard three bedroom, four bedroom semi in the suburbs, but that's not sustainable. And then sustainable housing, which is compact growth, uh, apartment, uh, duplex development, cost of construction is such that without some kind of uh, lever being pulled on actual cost side, uh, or on the incentive side, uh, people are struggling to be able to get the wherewithal and the resources to purchase those houses for themselves, those properties for themselves.
Yeah, understood. Thanks, Pat. Um, one question probably for you, Jay. Um, uh, what are the Office of Planning what are the Office uh, of the Planning Regulator and Officer and uh, the Minister um, doing uh, to improve the development plan process? So, yeah, so in the development plan process, obviously, you'll have kind of policies and zoning around housing, uh, just for example, and um, the Office of the Planning Regulator is part of that process whilst the development plans being uh, prepared will you know make uh, submissions and they may make observations or recommendations for example where the office considers there's been a this um the development plans not in line with national or, or regional policies there's not that clear link um that i was talking about earlier um if the local planning authority doesn't take those recommendations on board then there's uh, a process from the adoption of that uh, development plan there's a, there's a window where the uh, the OPR will then uh, notify the minister and the minister can then um, issue a, a direction um, to the local planning authority um, to um, to make those changes and that comes after a public consultation exercise one of the issues is, is that same window um, during that time, if, uh, for example, a, a developer or anyone uh, you know, doesn't agree with, for example, the housing policies or housing uh, strategy or zoning within that development plan, the judicial review window um, is also during that time as well as the OPR and the minister in terms of you may have an indication of what uh, they're going to do uh, in, in, in relation to changing the development plan, but you won't have a final decision from the minister until after that judicial review window is finished. So a lot of the times, you know, developers uh, and uh, other people may might just launch judicial review actions against those development plans to effectively protect their position whilst waiting to see what the minister does with the with the final direction. Great, thanks, Dave. Pretty comprehensive. I'm um, just conscious the time is against against us. Um, I think one more question. And um, that probably for uh, for Pat um, says if developers can't afford to build at the moment um, and are being taxed on uh, undeveloped zoned land, um, are we creating uh, a scenario where where state actors are the only show in town, um, AHPs, local authorities, or the LDA? Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is that you know. These people are procurers of, of things. They don't build anything themselves currently. Uh, so they're going to have to be in collaboration with the private sector if they want to up the state's um, uh, contribution to the housing market. They're going to have to do it in collaboration with the private sector. Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm not, um, I'm agnostic in like who builds houses, I would contend that the private market knows how to do it more efficiently than anybody. Um, and traditionally, as I said, uh, the, the state has had to rely on the private market to procure its, 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 to discharge its obligations and requirements. And I think the best way to do that is in a partnership uh, basis. And as I said, Project Tussie and Creek Fonah are, you know, tilting in that direction. But I think the 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 the, the the, um, the terms of reference scheme need need recalibration if they're going to um, to actually do what they're supposed to say what they say they do on or should do on the ten. I, I know there was another question there in terms of, if I may, on the institutional investors and market price for rent. I mean, the fact of the matter is there was an analysis done of this some time ago, which actually compared apples with oranges. It said that institutional investors were paying 
uh, roughly about I think it said thirty percent more for units than 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 the market. But of course, this analysis neglected to um, uh, uh, point out, uh, as was was challenged afterwards successfully by a couple of people, including I think some of the people that are on your participation list. Um, uh, institutional investors are almost exclusively purchase of apartments, whereas the the average price is is largely influenced um, in the for sale market by houses. So, and given what I said about the difference in cost of about thirty percent between houses and apartments, we're not comparing like with like. And then if so, then that figure came down to the gap came down to about ten percent. And when you then add on to that, the institution investors are generally purchases of stock at the higher or premium end of the market. That accounts for the specification, uh, accounts for the difference. And as I said, the yields that are being required are the kind of yields that traditionally a pension fund will want for that part of its mandate to do with that asset class, which is of the order of three and a half to four percent. Um, and the final question, which I put back to the uh, anonymous attendee question, is that you know we're experiencing continuously and it's accelerating a mass exodus from the rental market by the traditional mom and pop landlord, and we have a crisis of uh, availability of stock in the rental market. And with institutional investors being the only ones prepared to fund and finance apartment developments and supply generally for the rental market, what would the questioner do instead? Uh, because at the moment, we badly need that continued institutional investment to, repair, to, keep, to, mark, to, keep, to try and even stem or, or balance the exodus by the traditional uh, landlords and not even keep it up at the moment. But if they were to exit it altogether, um, uh, we'd have an even bigger emergency in the rental market. And finally, I would just say that the current 2% rental cap is doing nothing for the promotion of supply in the rental market, because with headline inflation running at 9% or 8 or whatever it is, and rents capped at an absolute 2%, um, how would you convince anybody to invest in or fund um, a development of, of rental stock for the Irish uh, rental market currently? Indeed, um, and, uh, and thanks for that. Um, Pat, it's two minutes to 12, so unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up there. Um, Anya, Jay, uh, Pat, thank you very much for that. Um, very informative, plenty to consider, and thank you to everyone um, that joined us. Um, there will be a survey circulated afterwards, and be very grateful if you take the time to complete it. We really welcome the feedback um, on, these, on these sessions. It also gives you an opportunity to kind of identify the topics that you would like us to cover. And if we didn't get your question today, you can submit it uh, by that function as well. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. And uh, have a great day. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Thank you.